Welcome to this inaugural webcast. You will immediately notice a difference in our format and our flavor in comparison to what you typically hear on the radio. That's because you are listening to an unedited conversation between myself and many of you who want to think more soberly about the return of Jesus Christ. So I invite you to sit back and listen weekly to this program. I invite you to write back to us if you have more questions concerning any topic you might hear. Each week you will find an ongoing dialogue concerning what we believe to be the most biblical approach to the timing of the return of Christ yet to be espoused by evangelicalism. That's because we believe that it is the truth, that it is biblically defensible, that the Lord Jesus Christ shall return to evacuate his people from a world in chaos. You will gain fresh insights into the scriptures. You will hear of newsworthy events in Israel. So please check back weekly for this program. I think you will be glad you did. Please tell a friend and whatever you do, please tell our enemies. So let's begin the study. As it relates to the book of Revelation, pre-tribulationalists have traditionally argued that three passages are arguments form the basis of their confidence that Jesus Christ's return will follow a pre-tribulational scheme. First, the promise of Revelation 3.10. Second, John's evacuation to heaven at Revelation 4.1. And third, the absence of the term church in Revelation chapters 4 through 19. These are the strongest arguments for the pre-trib position with regards to the book of Revelation. For those who want to believe, these arguments seem to make an airtight case. Yet most of those who believe these positions do not know that each one of them have have been completely demolished. They have, they have been put to death and buried in the grave of false foundation for a pre-trib rapture. In this series, we will examine each of these arguments to see whether a pre-trib rapture has support in the revelation by John from the Lord Jesus. First, we are going to examine Revelation 3.10. What is promised here? Does this verse support explicitly or implicitly a pre-trib rapture? It has been touted as a critical opponent of the pre-trib position because of what is promised. If this passage does support a pre-trib position, then certainly we want to look at what elements of it fosters this idea. However, if it does not, then we should be willing to admit, we should be willing to uh, we should be willing to admit, uh, we should be willing to say that it does not and reject any notion otherwise. The verse, Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 says or reads, Because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, 
I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Robert H. Gundry says about this verse, it's probably the most debated verse in the whole discussion about the time of the church's rapture. Pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-tribbers alike believe that Revelation 3.10 has something to do with the rapture of the church. They all agree that it promises protection to the church to some degree. They all agree that the protection applies uh, to the future promised quote-unquote wrath. According to Paul Feinberg, the question that divides us has to do with the nature of that protection. In other words, we don't agree or we have not yet come to agree as to exactly what kind of deliverance uh, the verse promises. The debate centers around the question of whether this verse promises the church protection by being taken off the earth before the quote-unquote wrath starts, or whether it promises protection through the wrath on earth. Now, it is my opinion that we have been so busy trying to prove our preconceived notions or conclusions about this verse that the original intent perhaps has either been lost are unrecognized. The word from, the Greek word ek, has received more attention than the whole verse put together. The, the, level, the level of debate about the precise usage intended for from in Revelation 3.10 has gotten so technical that the average layperson simply can't follow the debate. Does it mean out from within or outside. Pre-tribbers have argued it means outside. Post-tribbers argue out from within. Pre-tribbers insist that this verse is a promise to the church that Jesus will rapture it outside the tribulation. That is, God will evacuate the church before the 70th week of Daniel begins. Post-tribbers such as Gundry argue that this verse is a promise to the church that God will evacuate his elect out from within the tribulation. That is, God will protect the church during the quote-unquote wrath and remove it near the end. These have uh, been the consistent arguments uh, put forward uh, in defense of the various positions concerning the meaning of this verse. As is often the case, both positions have some truth, but I believe it also they also have some error. By focusing in great detail on one tree and giving only a cursory glance at the others, pre-tribbers and post-tribbers alike have missed the forest for the trees. Revelation 3.10 is neither a promise to deliver the church outside the Great Tribulation, as pre-tribulationalism teaches, nor a promise to deliver the church out from within the Great Tribulation in the sense of which post-tribbers articulated. It is a promise to deliver the church, but it is a promise to deliver it from the day of the Lord. This is the promise Christ gives 
in the Olivet Discourse. This is the promise Peter and Paul give in their writings. And unless explicitly stated, for consistency's sake, we would therefore demand that this is the meaning of John's writing unless we can demonstrate otherwise. As we turn our attention to the an exposition of this great verse, Revelation 3.10, the first thing we need to attack is the issue of translation. A proper translation of this verse, as you will see, will yield a an appreciable understanding of its intent. Our attempt to gain a correct interpretation of Revelation 3.10 begins with understanding some issues related to the matter of translation. A comparison of the most popular translations of the New Testament would make it seem that there are uh, no translational options with respect to this verse. The King James uh, the King James translation says, "Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth." That particular translation with a few modifications of different words is pretty much reflected in the NASB, the English Standard Version, and the NIV. It is also the sense reflected in the Net Bible, which I read earlier. Now, one would think, given the consistency of English translations, that the grammatical structure of the Greek that lies behind the translations pose no interpretive challenges. However, this is not the case. The decision to make the clause, because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, or as it's translated in the King James Version, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, the beginning of a new sentence influences the theological conclusion one draws from Revelation 3.10. As you noticed, terms like since, as in the NIV, and because, as in the Net Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the King James Version, and the English Standard Version, they all reflect correctly the translator's decision that the clause, because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, that that particular clause states the cause for an action God take. In this particular case, the six translations given above reflect their translator's belief that because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, is the cause of God's promise to the Philadelphians to keep you from the hour of testing. While this is a possibility, it is not the only possibility. In the original Greek text, there are no periods, commas, 
a question mark. Punctuation is a decision a translator makes based on his or her understanding of the Greek manuscript. It is just as possible that because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly is the cause of God's promise, which is stated in verse 9, where he makes a similar promise to the Philadelphians that he will make them, the lying false Jews, come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, taking this position would result in changing Revelation 3, 9 through 11, which the Net Bible renders as, Listen, I'm going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews yet are not but are lying, look, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, of great interest is that changing the comma to a period will affect quite significantly how we understand this particular verse. It would read, listen, I am going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews yet are not but are lying. Look, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, period. Thus, Verse 10 would then begin a totally new sentence. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. This change in the punctuation reveals, I believe, the correct intent of Revelation 3.10 exchanging the period and the comma that precede and follow the clause because you have kept my admonition to to endure steadfastly changes the theological significance of the text. Enduring steadfastly is no longer the cause of God's promise to keep the Philadelphians from the hour of testing. However, before we look at the theological significance and implications of this verse, I want to demonstrate why I believe a change in punctuation is grammatically defensible and correct. To a great degree, I'm dependent on a series of articles published by Dr. John Niemöller, professor of Hebrew and Greek at Schaefer Theological Seminary out in California. In an article published in the Schaefer Theological Seminary Journal in the year 2000, January, Dr. Niemiller argues with great precision and accuracy that careful scrutiny reveals a subtle yet a significant error in most English translations. Revelation 3.10a's causal clause is not subordinate to verse 10b, but rather to verse 3.9, close quote. In layman's term, the change in punctuation suggested above is a, is a more accurate reflection of the normal, natural, and customary relationship between main clause and subordinate clause in the Greek language. Now, I'm sure Dr. Miller draws this conclusion based on his grammatical and stylistic uh, points found 
in the Greek text of Revelation 3.10. Unfortunately, his proofs are a bit technical for the average uh, person. and Therefore, I, I will try to uh, paraphrase Dr. Numello's conclusions in such a way that you can appreciate exactly what it is that he is trying to say. First, he suggests that the Greek word kaigo, which is translated and I, is made up of a Greek compound, two words, kai, K-A-I, and ego, I. Kai and and the word ego, I, normally connects parts of speech that are equal. That is, two sentences, or two clauses, or two nouns, or two verbs. It would be highly unusual for chi to connect two parts of speech that are not equal. In Revelation 3.10, the traditional punctuation attempts to connect an independent clause with a dependent clause. This is unusual. That's the proverbial mixing of apples and oranges. Now, this is a rather significant detail, which greatly influences our understanding of this particular text. The first part of verse 9 suggests that the second part, the clause, because you have kept my admission to do it steadfastly, would make an independent clause and a dependent clause joined by and equal. Grammatically, that is impossible, or it is certainly not normative for the way the Greeks constructed your typical sentence. Now, you may not uh, appreciate that. Perhaps it may be a little confusing to you, but normally you have two independent clauses or two simple sentences joined with and, and we do this in our English language. I am going to town and I am going to buy a dress. Two independent sentences join with the word and. But we don't normally say, I am going to town and to buy. We would normally have to define what it is we're going to buy in order for that sentence to be balanced. The second part, or the second support for a change in punctuation, concerns the tense of the verbs in Revelation 3, 9 through 10. If you notice in your Bible, it says, listen, I am going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but are lying, look, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Those three verbs, I will make, I will make, and I will keep our focus towards the future. Jesus is the subject of each verb. Replacing the comma with the period after the phrase endure steadfastly ensures that the reader understands the proper relationship between the three verbs. These are three things that are promised to the Philadelphians. He promises that he will make these false Liars come and bow down at their feet, and he promises to keep the Philadelphians from the hour of testing. The last issue concerns 
the verb to keep. This verb is used three times in Revelation 3, 8 through 10. In the first two instances, it refers to the obedience of the Philadelphians. The last occurrence concerns the deliverance promised by Christ, replacing the period at the end of Revelation 3, 9 with a comma, and the comma in Revelation 3.10 with a period clearly distinguishes the relationship of the first two occurrences from the last. Now, concerning the grammatical correctness of Dr. Niemiller's conclusion, we are in complete agreement. Following his suggestion, the New American Standard Bible would thus read, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie... I will make them come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. And I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. This grammatical change reveals the theological intent of Revelation 3.10 and highlights, if any, what significance this great passage has for the rapture question. Now, it's important for you to appreciate the significance of the change that I am suggesting. You might think that one is violating a principle in suggestion that a comma be replaced by period. However, you need to understand that someone made that choice a long time ago about where the commas and the periods are to be placed, but subsequent reflection has often required changes in punctuation because the authors, the original translators, did not catch the sense of what was intended. Now, this whole debate is not purely theoretical, but in fact flows out of the way that the Greek New Testament operates, that is, the grammar. Normally, clauses follow the main clause, or should I say, independent independent clauses tend to follow dependent clauses, or rather, dependent clauses tend to follow independent clauses. Are you confused? Sounds like I'm getting confused. Independent clauses are sentences which can stand alone. I am going to town because I have to buy a new suit. Because I have to buy a new suit is a dependent clause. They, in the New Testament, in this particular construct, those clauses follow the independent clause. And in this case, the decision in most translations to put the dependent clause that begins with the word because at the very beginning of this sentence is suggesting something that is particularly unusual in the New Testament. 
In fact, an examination of all the occurrences of this particular purpose clause demonstrates that 99.9% of the time, the clause comes after the independent portion of the sentence. Thus, we suggest that because you have kept the word of my perseverance goes with the previous part of verse 9 and that a new sentence should begin verse 10 and it should begin and I will keep you from the hour of testing. If you mark in your Bible, you would notice that there are three primary independent clauses here. I will cause those, I will make them, I will keep you. Three assertions, three promises that verse verses 9 and 10 make to the Philadelphians. I believe that this is critically and significantly important and that recognizing this particular fact of which all Greek grammarians would must agree requires that a period form at the end of my perseverance and that verse 10 a new verse a new sentence should begin and I will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. Now, it's important for us as respecters of God's word, and we do respect God's word, and we are sobered by the reality that God informs us that we are under no conditions to play fast and loose with his word. It's not easily, one should not easily undertake to suggest changing how a particular verse reads unless there is ample substantial foundation for it. And I believe that if you checked with any Greek grammarian, he would in fact have to agree with Dr. Nemilas that a change in punctuation with regards to Revelation 3, 9, and 10 is foundationally appropriate and thus, the sense of that verse is finally clear. God made three promises to the Philadelphians, and those promises are reflected in our sense of this great verse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy, for your greatness, and for the awesome plan recorded in your word. As you were faithful when the Lord Jesus came the first time, you will be faithful in his return. And so we thank you, we honor you, we glory in you, we marvel in the wonder of your name. I pray, O oh God, that you would bless us that we would be faithful to your word, that you would keep us humble and sober. Oh God, I pray that you would reveal to us the depth and breadth and height and width of your word, that we may know intently how to live in these last days. 
Oh God, I pray that your word would never be an end in itself. That is, that we would not merely want to know it so as to impress others, but that we would seek to know your word, that we might live your word. May your word have a reality in our everyday existence, in how we treat one another, and how we treat our loved ones, and, oh God, how we relate to a world that though fallen and broken and intent upon destruction, yet there are those among them whom you desire to call to yourself to save and to sanctify. And so we thank you, we honor you, we glory in you, and we ask that you would, if in any and all ways, O oh God, bless and anoint your name and keep it holy among men. We thank you, we honor you, and we glory in you. And I bless your people in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Friend, we're so glad that you joined us in this inaugural webcast. We thank God for his blessings, and we look forward to the many great blessings that he will give to us as we seek to be faithful to his word. And if we are called upon to be that final generation of mankind that will face the unparalleled persecution of Antichrist, only to see it give way to the unparalleled pouring out of God's great wrath against the wicked, then so be it. For, Father, we thank you for the honor and the privilege and for the unspeakable joy that our hearts have in knowing your word and living according to it. Bless us and keep us is my prayer for you and for myself. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.